Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. All righty. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. I think I finally decided because today's topic is not about productivity. So the Unmistakable Creativity Hour I think is a good decision because it allows us to cover a wide range of topics and as we mentioned last week, as we made a decision at the end of the episode about decision-making, this week we decided the topic that we want to cover is failure and learning from our mistakes. So, Gareth, full confession, I had a massive failure while we were recording last week's episode. Oh, no, what happened? So, you know how we were talking ironically about good habits and bad habits, and we drank a couple of glasses of wine. Yeah, when bad I habit, the for next sure. morning, I realized <laughs> I had drank more than a couple of glasses of wine. And I don't know about Ooh. you, but at 44, a hangover is really not pleasant. So I, that, that was yeah. my big failure last week. Okay, I'm glad to hear you say that because apparently we both had a little bit, a little too much of the sauce last week. Because, yeah, we must have just really let loose and had too much fun in that episode. Because really? I woke up on Thursday in I, I, pain, I, bro. Yeah, me too. Good. In well, pain. Yeah, no, trust me. I, that, I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> this is really not what I expected. I didn't realize that. It, yeah. Ironically said as we both reached for our glasses of wine. Yeah. But that's okay. Okay, hey, listen. Last time. We though, learned. I was too deep. Yeah, we I was too deep. <laughs> yeah. And I've learned from my failure. This time, this is my first glass. We're kicking off. I wish I could Relatively sober. <laughs> so one of us learned from his failure. So, so, it's something. You know, it's a start. We should put this disclaimer out: is that this segment will rarely be substance-free. Oh, good. The only reason you got me here was because you promised me that we could have a happy hour together. Yeah. That we would have. But this, the only difference being, it's being recorded as opposed right, right. to so, what you and I would just our, our, our normally do on Zoom. Our is being documented for the world to hear. Oh, good. I'm sure someone somewhere well, is hey, going to use look, this against I mean, us at some Russell point. Russell commented <laughs> on our, my other substance of choice when he actually wrote it. Ah, uh, so, yes. Um, That's yeah. right. And did you want to give a shout out to Russell? Because yeah, I know you mentioned that. Too, but that was really oh, did you? You know, nice of him. Yeah, it was hilarious. He was like, you mentioned getting smoking a joint before the episode. I was like, yeah, I did. I'm kind of wondering how many of our listeners smoke weed. This is something I've always been curious about. Feel free to write in and let me know about your failures and successes with marijuana. I got to think it's got to be at least 50%. Wouldn't you yeah. think? I, I mean, given the nature of our guests and our content possibly, but who knows? <laughs> now, granted, we live in Colorado now. Things are a bit more open here in terms of that in particular, but I worked for a billion dollar company before I started my own and the CEO there was no had no problems being open about the fact that he was a total wake and bake. I would imagine a lot of CEOs are. And ironically, yeah. as you guys probably have noticed, we managed to find segues from things that seem like they're about nothing because this makes a perfect segue <laughs> into one of the key <laughs> things that actually determines how we think about failure, and that's social conditioning. You and I were talking last time about the fact that, in one of the episodes, about the fact that my job was basically to get straight A's in school, which I did for the most yeah, part. Yeah, and yeah. And so I, I don't know why I started writing this article about how the search for right answers 
is what has destroyed the American education system. And if you think about it, that actually, in a lot of ways, is a big part of the problem because the way that we're conditioned to think about being wrong is as some sort of label. And so in school, when you're wrong, you get the label of here is a smart kid, here's a dumb kid, here's a jock, here's an athlete, whatever. And we use labels, but we call them grades. And that I think is the real downside mm. of grades. Look, I'm all for actually objectively finding a measure for how well somebody understands something. And it's fine if we use letter grades to do that. The problem is that when the letter grade becomes the label and the identity of the person we assign that to, which unfortunately in a lot of cases for many young people, that becomes their identity. It's like I fail a test mm. turns into I am a failure. I don't know about you, but I don't remember ever getting a bad grade on a test the entire time I was in kindergarten through 12th grade, but that's because I never was encouraged to be wrong. In fact, I was actively discouraged from being wrong. And yet the mm -hmm. irony of all of that is my dad is a scientist. He literally has spent his entire life being wrong to get to an original idea that is right. Like he literally, yeah. he fails in experiments on a daily basis. Experiments don't go properly. And that to me has always been a bit ironic that you teach people to seek right answers when in the real world there aren't any. So I'm gonna tee it back to you. When you say in the real world there aren't any, for those who don't know, which is probably everybody who listens to this show, I undergraduate work was in applied mathematics. In my world, as a mathematician, there is oh, there's definitely a right answer. But it's interesting that you bring up this subject because I've often thought that the way we teach math is wrong. Yeah. Because if you think back about like the true mathematicians of yesteryear, right, hundreds of years ago, who gave us the foundational building blocks of math that we use still today, yeah. they thought differently. They came at everything very creatively. And today math is taught and it's like, this is the process. This is how you do the thing. And now do it 80 times until the pencil is worn into your finger and you get that indentation because you've done the long division problem so many times and you've wasted a tree iterating this crap. And it's like, of course, the greatest irony of that is what, and I don't mean to suggest that it's not important to know how to do long division. I think that's a great skill that probably everyone should have, but we also have calculators. So yeah. like the last time I did long division by hand, could I do it? Yes, because I iterated it a bazillion times. But, but you know, why? I think you bring up a really interesting point, particularly about math, because there's this sort of pervasive belief with Indians that my, my dad would always tell me I, when I would get bad grades in English because I was a dick to the English teacher. I literally told a guy he was fat in front of the class. Like, I... Wow. Yeah, I, he was one of our friends. My friend George raises his hand and says, hey, man, can you sing? And I basically said, of course he can sing. Haven't you seen Pavarotti? Fat people have great vocal cords. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Needless wow. to say, I probably didn't deserve an A after that. If a kid said that to me, I might probably be like, yeah, fuck you. What yeah. grade was this in? This was at North, my sophomore year. Oh, my year. gosh. And oh, I totally know. I totally know who you're talking about. I won't Jim call Hunter. him out. Okay, I knew. Apparently, we're going to call him out. I was yeah, like, he's yeah, obviously no, talking about no, Mr. Hunter. He, the funny thing <laughs> is, I actually really liked him as a teacher. He was hilarious. But somehow, we just butted heads. because I can't. Were you trying to be funny? Or no, you had some like some chip on your shoulder you were coming well, out of Well, somehow, I don't remember what caused it. You want to talk about a failure. This is a failure to form a decent relationship with a teacher who honestly <laughs> was not a bad teacher. Like, he was actually interesting. It was funny. I don't know. Something happened, and he basically once told me, he said, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of getting an A in my class. 
And once I hated teachers decided, who said that stuff. Once he decided that, my dad and I would go back and forth, and he would say, well, in math, there's the only place where you can get 100% and you'd never be wrong. But I think what's interesting about... That's probably why I love math. That, but you made a really good point. To be right in math when you're in high school, you actually have to do it the way the teacher taught you. Whereas if you find a more efficient path to the same problem or you don't do it the way they teach you, then you actually don't get yeah. the grade that you want to get. And oh, yeah. Everyone's been told you have to show your work in math. If well, you don't show your work but you get to the right answer, you don't get credit. So take a listen to this. This is something Dan Pink said about primary education. What these systems tend mm -hmm. to reward is respect for authority and giving the authority figure what he or she wants neatly and on time. And I think what it does is that it inculcates this. What you have in elementary and secondary education is you still have the good kids and the bad kids in a way. The good kids are compliant. The bad kids are defiant, but nobody's engaged. And the reason for that is that it's a system built, to, it's a system built on control. And control leads inevitably only to those two kinds of behaviors, compliant behavior or defiant behavior. Even things like in elementary, even elementary classrooms where the teachers focus on, and this is not a knock on teachers at all, but it just in their professional training, they focus on quote unquote classroom management. What do you make of that? I, I'd never considered that before, but it, as I'm listening to it, my initial thought is to internalize what he's saying. I was definitely a good kid. I was compliant, what, the way he's describing. Yeah. And I would have never associated with the defiant kids because the stigma of the defiant kids was they're not going places. They're never going to amount to anything. Yeah, ironically, so there's a guy, Eric Barker, who wrote a, a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And if you Google it, you'll find this. He has an article about why high school valedictorians don't become CEOs of companies. And there's the interesting thing about that is that Typically, if you're a straight-A student, to your point, what we are taught to do is to be compliant. And we're really good at it, like exceptionally oh, yeah. good at it. And so this was something I always, Matt would always ask me, do you get straight-A's in high school? And of course I got straight-A's in high school. I'm Indian. You know, like, that's, that's not a question <laughs> you ask Indian people. Most, I, don't, I think I know like maybe two Indian people who didn't got straight-A's in high school. Funny enough, one of them is related to me, but that's because his mom is really cool and she is let the kid do what he wants. Mm. Or my cousin Rama, but... Yeah. So... Yeah, that's the one thing. So I, I think that was fascinating because my dad was very smart about the fact that he wouldn't pay us for grades, which I realized what he was doing implicitly was teaching us the value of intrinsic motivation, which is invaluable when you build a business, when you do any, particularly when you build a business, it's invaluable. But the flip side of that was that we were discouraged from failure. Failure was frowned upon, like failing at a test, right. failing at anything, and the funny thing is you get out into the real world and usually you have to fail a thousand times at something before you figure out a right answer. It's like, as I was writing that article, I was like the most illuminating thing. Ironically, you think about Thomas Edison. He was wrong a thousand times. So it turns out that being wrong is actually more illuminating literally than being right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like, so I don't know about you. What was the sort of, I mean, you're a straight A student too. I know this because we both went to the same high school. We're both honor students, but yep. overall mom being a teacher, what was the sort of default narrative that you were taught about failure, particularly when it comes to grades? Because I think that is the first place oh. where we start to form an association or a definition of failure. Yeah, I was, I was absolutely, as the previous clip suggested, I was absolutely the compliant kid. I colored within the lines really well, and I knew how to conform and produce 
the output as quickly as possible that the teacher wanted yeah. without ruffling any feathers. And that was super easy. And I thought that was the, I thought that was the completion of life. Like, I thought that was the ultimate goal. For the longest time, I thought that I was doing super, super well. Like, I was like, oh my God, I'm going places, guys. I can color between the lines so fast. Yeah. You have any idea how fast I can color between the lines? It's amazing. But what a stupid metric to do with ourselves by. Crazy thing. So I remember, like, I, I get to Berkeley, right? Which is this place for all these people who are basically the experts at coloring in lines, right? Everyone, most, like 98% of the people there are straight A students. Most of them are valedictorians at high schools or in the top 15 in their class. And, I, and I've said this on the show before. It's like the irony is you take these smart, supposedly incredibly creative people and you put them in this melting pot of ideas and genius and all sorts of stuff. And ironically, it's a breeding ground for compliance because mm -hmm. what do they do? They're like, here, like, I, I think college in this country is like a fast food menu. It's like, here are the options for the food that you can buy. Here are the potential yeah. outcomes for the food that you will eat, AKA the career paths. And that to me has always been, I mean, obviously I've been a vocal critic of the system of education. I don't actually think teachers are the problem. I honestly think it's the system itself because look at standardized tests, right? I, I, you might, you being good at applied math, maybe we're good at standardized tests. I was terrible at them. Yeah, were you? Yeah. And I, so this is, you know, how we define failure is incredibly important because I can tell you, I honestly spent probably the better part of my life thinking, uh, I guess I'm not that smart. Getting into Berkeley was a fluke. I really? still think that to this day, I'm kind of like, all right, I don't know how the hell I got into Berkeley. There was a mis mistake in the admissions office or I actually only got in because I played the tuba and I was good at that. But, but again, Interesting. the thing is that it, largely that is the byproduct of how I was socially conditioned to think about the definitions of success and definitions of failure. I come from the Indian culture where the definition of success is very much contingent on pedigree on things right. that are quantifiable, things that are metrics. It's like, oh, you went to this fancy school or you make this much money or you're a doctor or you're an engineer or God forbid you're an artist unless you're Hassan Minaj. It's like, oh, you're just a person with a fake job. Srini the loser, as it reminded me. Obviously, I don't understand your culture firsthand. I've got to see it secondhand, yeah. having been a friend of yours for so long. I think we all probably struggle with our own, either our own preconceived notions about what success means, right? From mm -hmm. our family or whatever. Not to get like super personal and super no, but I don't think my dad's ever told me he's proud of me. And I feel like I'm doing a pretty darn good job at life. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because like I used to get mad because my dad didn't read my books and I was like, yeah, I'm like, you know what? I'm like, one, he's a weirdo because he's a college professor who doesn't read, which to this day doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me. And on a side note, he's incredible at Scrabble. Like, he wipes the floor with all of us. Despite the fact that I he know. Read, my sister was like, oh, you should be really good at this. I've yet to beat the man at Scrabble. That's so funny. I know. And, and you I, probably never will. And that's I, okay. I don't think so. Like, I think I've you know, relinquished my opportunity to succeed at Scrabble in particular. I'm just, right. I, I've come to terms with the fact that my dad is going to be the king of Scrabble, although my cousin beat him. But yeah, no, I think that's one of those things that you really, it's really detrimental, unfortunately, that we use this stigma with failure. And yet often, it's funny because Will Smith in his biography said in school, you get, you, you learn the lesson and you take the test. He's in life, you get the test and you learn the lesson. Ah, no, that's a smart thing to say. It's true, right? It is you true. Know, and 
So I thought it would be fun is to look at our personal failures first. Obviously, <laughs> oh, that our, sounds like a, so much fun. Oh, minus our hangovers. Like, yeah, I was yeah. thinking about them from the standpoint of relationships and then well, professional oh. failures. And my professional failures are very simple. We can sum it up in one sentence. I've been fired from every job I've ever had. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's, well, that's one part of my career that we can sum up. That should just literally be the headline on my resume. How people have a headline on their resume, I should just yeah. put that at the top and be like, I've been fired from every real job I've ever had. Yeah, but the funny part is, why would you or why would a guy like you or me ever have a resume ever again? Resumes are becoming more and more worthless. Like we should actually right. do an episode on being a career portfolio and why resumes oh. are useless. That actually should be our next episode. Yeah, that's a fun idea. If you guys are listening, I think that's a good idea. Let's Renny know, and we'll put that on the docket for next time. It would yeah. be kind of cool, actually. You could build like a one-page, simple website mm-hmm. that showcases all of your achievement there are professional achievements but only that forget a, a website the, so let me tell you the this is the mistake that people made in speaking of failures this was my first big online failure you know oh. about this probably because you read unmistakable some people might and because i've mentioned this but i got out of business school yeah everybody was trying to find unique ways to find a job and i'm like all right cool this girl jamie verone has been a guest on our podcast she started twitter should hire me i'm like perfect i'm gonna start 100 reasons you should hire me you know why i failed I couldn't come up with a hundred reasons why anybody should hire me. And but more importantly, that <laughs> proved to me the most important thing of all, which was that I didn't have any tangible evidence of my skills. It was just a, my bullet points on my resume. So not just your achievements, but tangible evidence. Yeah. But we'll come back to that because that's another episode. We'll do an entire episode. Another episode. So yeah, that. Uh, but that, uh, like I said, every time we seem like we're going in a direction that doesn't seem to be leading to a point, we can always tie it back. So. That was a perfect example of a failure, and I learned a lot from that failure. Exactly. I learned numerous things, which we'll talk about, but let's start with some personal failures. You want me to go? All right. Yeah, go for it. My adult life did not go as planned. So Yeah, that's an understatement. I I think I probably, I'm probably speaking for pretty much every human out there. I have this idea in high school of who we're going to become. But yeah, I had over a 4.0, graduated high school near the top of my class, thought I would apply to the Air Force Academy, which is West Point for for the Air Force. Got all the stuff, everything all settled, my congressional nomination, all this stuff, and and then got in a gnarly car accident in the last month of my senior year. Not at fault, some other guy drove right into us, I went through exploratory surgery, suffered from some PTSD after the fact. So I can't, I don't count that as a failure because it's not something that I did that led to that, but it caused a major hurdle. Obviously I didn't wind up going to that school, not that they accepted me anyways. So I wound up going to community college, which was a huge blow to my ego because I was, I thought of myself as, well, to be to be blunt, I was arrogant as hell. So obviously you know, that like part's not changed. Every other seventeen-year-old, like it seems like we can't stop picking on seventeen-year-olds. Like you, think hey, that's what we do here. It's like if you're, you're seventeen and you have high self-esteem, come <laughs> listen to this show. We're gonna beat you down. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Teach like, you. Even if you're the valedictorian <laughs> of the high school yeah. when you're seventeen, you're probably not as smart as you think you are because the real world oh. is gonna kick your ass. So many times over, and I'm sure everybody over the age of twenty-five is listening to this going, "Wow, yeah." Life is going to kick you, and it's going to kick you again. So get ready, because here we go. There's no other way about it. And and that's why I really resonate with this topic that you picked for us tonight, because you have to learn how to get up after you've been kicked down. Yeah. It's the most important characteristic that a human can have. I seriously believe, like, better than even brains is grit. Yeah. Grit has got to be the the most un- 
<laughs> unimpressive. Nobody talks about it, I feel. Well, like, not nobody... only that, because... Yeah, the problem is with the media we consume, right? Mm. Look, literally should be called, here's my fuck you highlight reel. Damn. Oh, jeez. Facebook's mean, a joke. Yeah, but... All of it is. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, nobody is like, yeah, I'm failing at this, I'm failing at that, I bombed at this. Who would basically be like, I got an F on this test? You know what the problem is? They should, we should do an it's... Instagram campaign called Bad Grades. <laughs> To raise need for education. Raise awareness for, yeah, for how like people actually perform. Like, we've been giving you shit endlessly for two weeks. So how about this? This is your opportunity. This is your yeah. opportunity to show us that you're not just a bunch of unmotivated, egotistical, narcissistic idiots who think they know everything. Wait, if you get straight A's, then we're going to pick on you too and tell you that well, you haven't learned enough yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we just basically described your daughter. And honestly, we wow. love you. And we, we are bullies, by the way. Yeah, we're terrible. We're not, we say this stuff lovingly only because we were idiots when we were 17. So we're hoping more than anything, you are learning from our failures to be smart. That's really Listen, I, we, we don't. If you're 17 and listening to this show, good on you. You're already thinking so much further ahead than both of us ever would have at 17. Undoubtedly. I was certainly not looking inwardly at 17, thinking about how I could improve myself. Yeah, no, of course. But my daughter just got into her top choice school, by the way. I didn't tell you yet. But yeah, she was. She thought she was going to her backup. But no, she just accepted an offer from her top choice. So she'll be, Very cool. she'll be heading on out. In. Yeah, so I think that makes a nice segue to talking about something that Dan Pink talked about. We talked about college education. We talked a little bit about compliance, but there's something he said in our episode that I, that really struck me. Take a listen. What you're incentivized to do is become a narrow and narrow spec. And so as a consequence, the undergraduate education that's offered is very rarely cross-disciplinary. And yet when these young men and women go out into the world, all of the problems and issues they confront are inherently multidisciplinary. I've never gone out into the world and anything that I've done in my 50 plus years on this planet and or let's say my 25 years in the workplace, I've never had a problem come to me and say, hello, Dan, I'm an English problem. I'm a math problem. I'm a social <laughs> studies problem. It comes to me, it's like, this is a big honking problem. It's not clearly uh-huh. stated. It doesn't have a single right answer. Wow. Yeah, it's so true, though. So, like, business school is a great example of this. You and I both went to business school. And there's something that Naval Ravikant said in his podcast on how to get rich without getting lucky, which honestly is literally the only podcast I've probably listened to at least 10 times because it's just packed (laughs) with so many gems. But he said, like, in the real world, there are idiosyncrasies that express themselves that don't. So, like, in theory versus practice. So starting a business is a great example of this because what do you do? You go to Harvard Business School or whatever business school, you read case studies and in a case study, all the variables are static. They don't account for variable change. They don't account for the fact that sometimes you'll hire idiots or you'll have to work with stupid people. <laughs> Although funny enough, when we were doing the class on organizational behavior or some class, I had to actually work with idiots who couldn't even give a presentation in proper English. It was amazing. Not And you know what? And it was people who were born and raised here who were educated here. And when Oh, I, was, I knew what you meant. I had those people in my classes too. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about a failure. That Honestly, it's like, how are you a person who was once in human resources and you can't articulate a clear sentence during a presentation grammatically with proper grammar, which my lack It's of funny that you say that's grammar. from organizational behavior. Anybody yeah. who has an MBA has had to take an organizational behavior class, yeah. and it is the absolute worst class through the whole program yeah. because every single person – it's like the DMV of <laughs> government – it's Whoa. like the absolute worst. So here's the irony of that class. It's the class that everybody hates, and yet 
when you get out of the real world, ends up being one of the most useful. <laughs> you're, you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy yeah, of needs no, like constantly, and, and you're like, oh my gosh, that was that class I hated. <laughs> Unmistakable Creed, I feel like, has been like a version of that class way more interesting with better teachers. But yeah, absolutely, <laughs> that's so true. You think about this whole idea of failure in business and failure creative endeavors, failure. There are no right answers. So let's talk about our professional debacle. At this point, we're going to have to let people know about the businesses that you're ashamed of, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but that's oh, okay. sure. So let's talk about that. I remember, so just to give people a background, what were you doing before you started these five businesses that failed? I think, I honestly think it was four businesses that failed, but I was in grad school when I started my first business and it was an Amazon reselling business. And that was and successful. I, it did pretty well. I found that I could take 5,000 bucks, go to Best Buy, and buy a bunch of DVDs and sell them on Amazon for 7,500 bucks. Yeah. And it, it worked pretty well. No. And I ran, I'm a math geek, so I had a bunch of spreadsheets and I was basically trading these DVDs like stocks, yeah, right? Yeah, so it was on arbitrage, basically. Yeah, exactly. It was you great. Know, it was on fun. On a side note, my old roommate Matt would do Facebook Marketplace arbitrage where he would buy used furniture. And Did he, he would really? No, literally. He'd buy, he'd buy three coffee tables for like $40 and then he'd sell <laughs> each one for 40 and people would buy them because he's like, nobody knows how much you paid for it. Why not try to sell it for more than you bought it for? That's okay. I mean, it's brilliant. Why not? But I guess for me, I'm like, what did you make? 80 bucks? Was it worth the drive that recently? Well, obviously, it's not a good idea for a scalable business, but a lot of this stuff we needed for personal use. But often, if we didn't use it, we're like, all right, to <laughs> okay, hell with it. Okay. make a profit. That's fair. But the funny thing is, for a second, he was just like, huh. I'm like, I wonder if I could do this at scale, which you could. It'd be a pain in the ass logistically. The logistics are the hard part, folks. And yeah. your garage would but be it's full possible. of all sorts of useless shit. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first one. Yeah. But then I was front row seat to the other ones because that's when we reconnected, I think, just as you were wrapping up Amazon Arbitrage. So, yeah. yeah. So Amazon, oh, man. I had this second idea. My second idea I never took to fruition. I wanted to build... Maybe I, nah, I'll just put it out there. If somebody wants to take it, guys, I'm so neck deep in gap consulting right now. There's no way I could do this other one. But I had this idea for creating like a mini, like a Keurig for beer that chilled your beer to the perfect temperature. Because if at the time I was bartending and every beer is supposed to be served at a different temperature. And I was like, how cool would it be if I could get on a subscription model and have beer delivered right to my house? And it's like in a gallon like bag. And I just tap it into this thing and it comes out instantly at 26 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Like how cool would that be? And that would be possible with a copper tubing that fed to the tap handle that was chilled to the precise temperature. That's, so that was that the, that was like the a idea. good idea. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm going to do it one day. Unless one of your, unless one of your listeners well, takes yeah, it, that's I mean, going to be honestly, my next billion you know, dollar idea. Do that. Just get it manufactured in China. Yeah. Yeah, right. Have to draw up a blueprint. I think that, oh yeah. Okay. So let, let, let's talk about each of our. But anyway, you know, personal <laughs> slash professional failures. Yeah. You want to talk about the actual failures? Got to get yeah, it. Yeah. So that was the idea. I wanted to run with that one. I didn't. And then a buddy of mine said, "Hey, you know what? I'm into this whole vape thing. It was just it was, vape was like a year old at the time. Yeah. Vaping nicotine, none of the other stuff. Yeah. And I was like, hey, I'm gonna." I'm going to build this liquid. I'm going to create a company that makes this liquid. You manufacture this liquid for 30 cents for a vial and you can sell it for 12 bucks. The markup was insane, right? So I was like, this sounds amazing. Let's go. And honestly, dude, in hindsight, I never belonged in that industry. No. But I failed at that one. Big time failure. And then 
Because I didn't learn from it, folks, this is the important takeaway from today's episode is learn from your failures. Don't be like your Uncle Gareth. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't learn from it. And so I was like, I don't fail. I'm going to do it again. And so I started another company in the same industry and failed again. And I should have just accepted the fact that it was a poor fit. Like me in that industry wasn't a fit. Like there are folks who made a lot of money in there. And good for them, it, but I never belonged in there. So, of which, anyway. anyway, I think that makes a, a perfect time to bring up a clip from one of our episodes. Oh, about good. It, so. <laughs> when I speak, when I talk of exceptional, it's becoming the best in your field, whatever it could be. You could be an exceptional accountant. You could be an exceptional podcaster. You could be an exceptional nurse. You could be an exceptional architect. You could be exceptional data analyst. Pick a profession. It, we're not just talking of being an exceptional quarterback or being an exceptional golfer like Tiger Woods. We're talking of being a, the best at your field, whatever it may be. And basically, I, I talk about being exceptional means maximizing your potential. Now, in some cases... If you are born like a Bill Gates or a Michael Jordan or a Tiger Woods, becoming exceptional means having an impact on the world. In other cases, it means just becoming the best you can become, maximizing your physical, your mental, your social potential that's available to you. And if you do, that's all you can hope to do. And that's being exceptional, just doing the best you possibly can. And once you do that, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you've given it your all, you've left nothing out there. Yeah, that in particular struck me because Kumar Mehta was our first guest of this year. He wrote a book called Exceptionals, How the Best Become the Best, and You Can Too. And one thing that I really appreciated about what he wrote about in that book was the importance of acknowledging your limitations to prevent failures. Because to your point, you just said this wasn't a fit for you. Yeah. And for me, the funny thing was that part of the reason this podcast started was because Sid Zavara, the first founder, co-founder of the podcast, said, you're a really average writer, more or less, <laughs> yeah, despite yeah. the fact that I got a book deal. But you said that your interviews are what you're good at. That's the thing that's going to make you stand out. So I knew mm-hmm. the probability that I would succeed was so much higher if I had chosen that path. And I think that's one thing that is important is paying attention to either implicit or explicit feedback. In my case, I got very explicit feedback. For you, it was implicit. It's like, wait a minute, I've done this twice, and both times I've failed. And so that is just stupidity when you keep doing the same thing over and over again. You're like, oh, I'm still failing. It's like, maybe you should try something different. It's the definition of insanity. Yeah, exactly. Do the same thing and expect different results. Yeah, so we're talking about business failures a little bit. I think personal failures, you brought up a car accident. For me, like the, if I were to point at anything where I think, you know, I've had failures would be in relationships, but I'll tell you for the last one that didn't work out, a lot of times when we fail, we walk away angry, we walk away pissed off. We only see the downsides. We're just like, ah, particularly in relationships, you're like, ah, to hell with that person. They suck, whatever. And I remember walking away from that thinking, all right, fine. Like, instead of seeing this as a failure, what if I looked at the things that I liked about this person that I would actually look for in somebody else? And I would start to just create this collection. And and I was like, wow. So then no date becomes a failure. It's like, all right, learn something from there. You go. And literally my attitude was like, okay, what if on for every date that I went on that didn't lead to a second date, I I looked back and said, okay, what's one quality in this person that I actually liked enough to look for in a future part. And that was actually incredibly beneficial. Like it just one, it makes you a hell of a lot less bitter when you, particularly when it comes to personal failures, personal failures, I think are sometimes even tougher than business failures because they just do 
a number on your, your ego and your, your mindset, particularly things like a relationship not working out when you get your heart broken, whatever it is, that sucks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you can wallow in your misery for months, as Gareth knows when I did, with <laughs> one relationship that I wouldn't stop talking about, which I, every, I think every one of us gets one of those. We get one of those where you get to be the guy from Swingers and just never stop talking about it until your friend's are like, all right, we're over this. We don't want to hear about this ever again. Yeah, I think that's part of finding yourself as a as an individual, but also as somebody who will eventually be in a relationship if that's something that you want. I think you so have to go something through for that. All pain. You seventeen year olds out there to look forward <laughs> to your first heartbreak. We're really hammering these poor kids today. I know we're just preparing you for the real world where shit hits the fan on a daily basis. But, but to be clear, I think we should reiterate: Srinivas and I are advocates of failure. Yeah. So yeah, go course. out there and get the crap kicked out of you. Just get up again. Yeah. Just make sure you get up again. Because otherwise, I look, sometimes I'm worried about my daughter, uh, my eldest daughter, being afraid. Like, she's yeah. just afraid to fail. And I'm like, please, life is going to hand it to you sometime. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Yeah. So get ready and steal yourself and have a strategy for overcoming that. Yeah, you really have to. I'll tell you, like, the funny thing is that people only know of Unmistakable Creative. They don't know their predecessor at this point because it's been so long. Oh, yeah. This literally just started as an experiment, which I think experimentation is critical for navigating yeah. this ability to deal with failure because pretty much everything in life is an experiment that you might fail at. Yeah. It is. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business, whether it's a job, every single thing you do in life, unlike school, <laughs> yeah. is literally an experiment where you might fail and there isn't actually one right answer. That I think is really the thing that strikes me most. It, it brings us back to the whole idea of the search for right answer. Like Dan said, like in the real world, no problem comes to you and is like, hey, I'm a math problem and this is the correct answer. <laughs> I don't know about you. The thing is, you, it's the funny thing is that I always think that most people would learn more from starting a lemonade stand than they would from getting a Harvard MBA because on a lemonade stand, you have to deal with shit. So I remember writing this ridiculous piece about how a lemonade stand in the in, in the real world, in business school, a lemonade stand is, hey, cute kid, sell some shit in the driveway, you buy it from him, kid gets an allowance, his parents teach him the value of a doll. In the sure. real world, here's my crazy example. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're talking about lemonade stands, and on a semi-related side note, do you have any small businesses that you started when you were a kid, Gareth? Yeah, actually, I haven't thought of this in like two decades. Marbles were huge when I was in elementary school. <laughs> Did you yeah. ever play marbles? Yes, and I'll tell you, I, I feel terrible about this. Talk about moral regrets. So uh -oh. Now that we're talking about what it. did you do, Srini? <laughs> so, <laughs> what did you do? All right. So I, I don't. Know, so there were numerous ways that you could play marbles. This was when I was in second grade, right? Yeah, yeah. One was like you, know, you use your marble to hit the other person's marble, and then you got the marble. You got to keep it. Yeah. So there was another version. And I don't know why this version even made any sense because inevitably the person who went first would win and the person who went second would fail. There's no way for okay. the second person to win. So there's a version called eye drops, which literally if you can drop your marble on top of the other person's marble, you get to keep it. <laughs> okay. okay. I decided, and poor girl, and I bet you she's really hot now too, which is probably Oh, jeez. So there's this girl named Audrey. She was known as the girl in class who wasn't very smart, and she had a ton of marbles. And so I decided one day at recess... <laughs> Wait, that's that ironic, though. Can we acknowledge how ironic <laughs> it is that she had a ton of marbles yeah. and then she wasn't didn't. smart. Okay. Hey, <laughs> you know, see, it, that's a perfect tie back to what we were talking about earlier. Social stigma. See, we tie it all together, whether you realize it or not. You think we're going in all sorts of directions. No, nope. everything is connected. It's a uh, spider web, folks. Yeah. So, 
Anyways, basically, I convinced her to play this eyedrops version, and I cleaned out her Marvel collection one day at lunch. Ouch. That's sad. Horrible. Talking about moral. Yeah, that's a moral regret. But my so, first but, I, but we'll but, bring this back to the lemonade stand in a second. Mine. But I tell you about mine. Yeah, yeah. Go it for wasn't it, marbles. I sold marble bags, bro. I was the Levi to the Gold Rush. That's like, smart. Yeah. It was great. I st- I learned how to sew. I went to Michael's, got some fabric. My mom had a sewing machine. She taught me how to stitch the the marble pouches. Uh, yeah, that was a pretty cool time. How much did you make? <clears throat> Bro, I don't know. $10, if I was lucky. <laughs> no, I probably sold a bag for like $2 or something. Like, All right. less than a slice of pizza. Okay, <laughs> clearly, good thing you've learned about pricing. So I had a lot to learn. <laughs> Mine was actually quite a big success. It was my first sort of entrepreneurial instinct. They opened up Sam's Club in College Station, Texas, because you got to remember, College Station, Texas is a small town. There was not a lot there at that time. There still isn't right. a lot there, but the football stadium takes up half the town because it's Texas. It's Texas, yeah. Yeah, but it is the coolest football stadium in the world. Like, when you walk onto Kyle Field for the first time, it's like tradition, pageantry. You just, honestly, there's nothing quite like it. It's an experience you should have. It, you can't even really put it into words. It's that cool. Weird. Uh, 120,000 people all in the stands watching what? a football game. It's one of the biggest... Is that state- even the population of that city? No, it's not. <laughs> so it people doesn't even make any home. sense. You're building a stadium that's got like five times the population of the city you're building it in? Keep Texas, in mind, it's man. a stadium so in Texas. Understand. It's a stadium yeah. in Texas, dude. That's what I'm saying. There's so Everybody much about that state that I don't understand. Gonna be there. There's nothing it's else so to do weird. when you live in college. Uh, Texas. But anyway, yeah. um, they opened Sam's Club and... We went there. I went there with my dad. I'm like, hey, there's these candies called crybabies or sour gumballs. Oh, yeah. And they were, I think, $8 for the entire box for 250 of them. And okay. I convinced Were my they dad, individually packaged? Yeah, they're individually packaged. Wow, dude. So I basically told my dad, I said, tell you what, give me, buy these for me for $8. I'll come back tomorrow with the money. And I took probably 30 or so to school the next day. And by lunchtime, I was taking orders for the, the following <laughs> day. And people who never spoke to me, popular girls, like two oh. girls, you know, jocks, everybody was literally walking up to me at lunch and be like, hey. Was Audrey there you? with her, with Audrey her was in second marbleless back? No, no, so. no. Audrey probably huh? got a lot smarter by then, hopefully. Yeah, she's probably like, that stupid son of a bitch took my marbles and now I'm never going to trust him. <laughs> I'm going to show him. Yeah, exactly. So... I ended up going back to my parents. I literally came back with a Ziploc bag full of cash. And my dad looks at me and he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, we need to go back to Sam's Club today. I have orders for tomorrow that I need to fulfill. And wow. so I realized at 10 cents, 250 of them, I could make $18 profit for box. One, I underpriced my product because there were people who would have happily paid a quarter. That was then, and the funny thing is this actually has to do with failure in the real world and how failures <laughs> happen due to circumstances that you can't control. Okay. What ends up happening is my friend, David, his friend Mark say, all right, look, you're clearly in all the honors classes. You've got the dorks covered, but you need to expand your territory. So let us take care of the athletes and the popular people. And the so I bring on these two guys and... Oh my god. Just as our expansion plan is beginning, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I've just gotten out of practicing tuba because I was a geek and practiced all the time. And there's all these people asking me for crybabies. And the choir teacher catches me. And she's like, What are you doing? So you're selling candy? And I'm like, Yeah. And 
the thing is, that's not cool. It's not cool. You're not allowed to sell candy in school. You remember how like we had fundraisers in school? Like you're allowed to sell them for fundraisers, not personal fundraising, which is stupid as you shit. Can, oh, you can sell it as long as it benefits the school. Yeah, but yeah, as exactly. soon as you start selling candy school, I mean, and undercutting the school, think about it. You probably have a school's concession stand somewhere, yeah, and you're undercutting the hell out of this them. This was in eighth grade. There was no concession stand. This was like in the late early nineties. I'm just saying, man, this is why these rules existed. It goes back to the original clip that you had, which about is compliance. like about it's either compliance or defiance. Yep. And this is the frustrating thing that I found about compliance because it was ingrained in us that we had to play by the rules. That's how you succeed in life. And yet the rules are completely arbitrary to benefit the scenario yeah, made by adults who are in power. And well, it doesn't change when you get older because now still tax laws and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is, they're, they're, are they written by people to keep themselves in power? Absolutely. It's more of the same well, Even when you go to college. I told this story before about a friend who basically didn't get into business school. And he was just like, all right, fine. I'm going to take all the classes. And he walks into the dean's <laughs> office two weeks before graduation. And it's like, my parents are coming on Saturday. I took all the classes in the business school, but I didn't get it. Are you going to let me walk or not? And she's just like, no choice. She had to just relent because what is she going to do? No, screw you. The guy took all the classes. He did everything. He just didn't get past the first round. And he basically looked at the rules and he was like, these rules are malleable. That's one thing I'll talk. No, honestly, That's a very entrepreneurial perspective. It I wonder what that guy's done today. Yeah, unfortunately not much. But oh, because that, that's, well, no, that's, that's an right? epic origin story. I know. The rules are always malleable, right? Like they are not, no rules are set in stone. People always ask me, like, what's the most valuable thing about going to Berkeley? I'm like, I learned how to manipulate bureaucracies and to look, ignore rules, make my own. That doesn't make you a patient person by any stretch of the imagination, but it sure as hell teaches you how to be resourceful. You mm -hmm. basically look mm -hmm. at systems and find way you find loopholes. There are loopholes in everything. And when you start to look for them, funny enough, you can use loopholes to avoid failures. But unfortunately, there was no loophole to get me out of this candy jail that I found myself in. <laughs> a candy right? jail. Yeah. I love it. So anyways, this is the – so the choir teacher gets on my – she looks at me. She's like, all right, tell you what. I'm not going to report you. But she's like, you're done. The choir teacher shut down my business. And you know what? If you live in a country where there are dictators – that could happen to you. Hell, that could happen here if we're not careful. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, literally, <laughs> we're so not that far. That's the thing, right? So there are circumstances that are out of your control in any business you start in the real world that there are going to be things that express themselves. So I, I remember writing this ridiculous story to bring it back to the lemonade stand. Yeah. So I was like, okay, yeah, in theory, your kid starts a lemonade stand. Let's just say that for the sake of a ridiculous example – that you start a lemonade stand and it becomes this lemonade stand empire. And you've got lemonade stands on every corner in every hot city in America, which come to think of it, that might actually be nice. And you got customers basically buying your lemonades or whatever it is. And then one day, a scenario that you couldn't have possibly anticipated happens. A Colombian drug dealer shows up and is like, you know what? Lemonade stands are a great place to distribute my cocaine because there's <laughs> high traffic, lots of people, and who knows, maybe many of them want to do cocaine. And you, as the business owner... <laughs> you got a real thing for cocaine. This is well, two yeah, out of three episodes, man. My, that's what happens when you watch Narcos too many times. Oh, it's all coming together. Yeah. So anyways, it's like... All right. Emilio Esteban shows up. You think to yourself, well, I'm an honorable person. I would never do something like that. That's ridiculous, Srini. How the hell... Why the hell would I become a cocaine dealer who just wanted to start a lemonade stand? Here's how. Simply put, this cocaine <laughs> drug cartel guy says, tell you what. I'm going to put a bullet in your head if you don't Ooh. distribute my cocaine at every 
lemonade stand that you own. And voila, now a lemonade stand has turned into a cocaine distribution arm. And that was something that you could not have anticipated because it's so ridiculous that it would have never happened, but that's the point. It's very ridiculous. Think about it. This is literally... My choir teacher in this example is the head of the cocaine cartel in the lemonade stand. See? It's all connected. It's all connected. But hold on. The real-life example, and I know that we're all trying to move past this right now, and we're on the precipice of endemic, and I can't wait to get there, or or for everyone to feel comfortable there. I'm hopeful that it's soon. But the realistic thing is that pandemic killed so many businesses. Could you imagine if you were a restaurant in 2020, like you just started your brand new restaurant and you were dine-in only? What the heck, man? Like, how could you even? There's no way you could could have anticipated that. And that's the thing. And that's why when you look at planning and procrastination as a way to mitigate failure, it usually doesn't work primarily because there are going to be variables that you cannot anticipate, circumstances you can't control, and events you can't predict. That's just the reality of running a business, running... That's the reality of doing anything, which is pretty much everything in the real world, where there's no clearly defined path and no actual right answer. Think about it. Like, you've been wrong once about being married and you're right the second time. Like, that's a big deal. And that is an example of, okay, I, I had to be wrong to learn what was right. Clearly, I haven't learned what is right seeing as the fact that I still have, you know, yet to make a relationship work. I also ended relationships where I knew, I was like, there's no way this is going to work. Yeah, see, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit there. Yeah. Just to say, oh, yes, I've been married twice. I'm on my second marriage right now, and thankfully it's nothing like my first marriage. Um, <laughs> in all the right ways. And that's that's really exciting, but, like, you're discounting the fact that there were dozens upon dozens of different gals that I dated in the interim there while trying to decide what is it that I'm looking for? What is it that I want? Just as you were describing earlier. So just to look at somebody and say, oh, they're married or, oh, they have a business or, oh, this is where they're at in life. And to think that that's it. I don't think that's the complete story. No, of course not. Because you know what? The thing is we don't tell the complete story because that's not as inspiring as the real right. one. The real one is like when people write their books, when they're <laughs> uploading their pictures to Instagram, it's like, I'm a badass. Like I, they might give like a subtle yeah. reference to like whatever failure they had. It's like, all right, look, let's right. do this. It's I'm like half a chapter. They'll just say like, oh, there was this time I failed, but by the way, here's the thing. Yeah. Whereas the reality is I failed longer than I've been successful in business. Yeah. And yeah. In love. Fuck. And I think that's life in general, right? For most people. Yeah. It's like, oh, great, I'm 90. I finally figured it out. Shit, too bad. I'm going to die tomorrow. <laughs> oh, man, I can't move anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's actually a good point. That, funny enough, makes a nice segue to talking about age is one of the mm. perceived limitations that I think prevents people from trying often. And so one thing that I think happened, which we'll talk about age here in a second, but let's get back to this idea of what happens when people let fear, like fear of failure becomes fear of trying. Because I've seen this happen to a lot of people where they basically fail the first time and they're like, all right. And you know what? Like a lot of people fail their first businesses. Like it doesn't work out. And often it doesn't work out for numerous reasons, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But for a lot of people, that first failure defines them. And there's this thing that Greg Hartle, my, my old mentor used to say, which always stayed with me. And I think was literally the lesson I think he wanted to drill into my head at nauseum. And that was your temporary circumstances are not your permanent identity or your permanent reality. 
It's my and favorite thing he ever said. That I mean, that right there is advice yeah. that literally, like, if you, I, I want, if I were to get, say a it again for the people in the back. Yeah, say we'll actually bring clips back from his episode in one of our episodes. I wanted to today, we didn't have time, but your temporary circumstances are not your permanent reality. And he really summed it up beautifully when we we had him as the speaker at our event, where he said, so often we take temporary things and we turn them into permanent things that prevent us from accomplishing the goals we want to accomplish, living the lives we want to live, and being as happy as we could be. Because truth be told, he came from a rough background, man. Father who abandoned him, watched his best friend get shot in a drive-by when he was something like 13 years old, basically believing he was stupid, and yet he's one of the smartest people you'll ever meet. Like, his level of thinking is so intense, sometimes it's annoying to be around. It's a common theme tonight. People think they're dumber than they are. Yeah. Just saying, bro. It's like, if you're the valedictorian, you're not as smart as you think you are. And if you're the person who's not getting good grades in school for you 17-year-olds, you're maybe not as dumb as you think you are. So we insulted the valedictorians and we complimented the kids who think they don't, they're don't. they not smart. <laughs> Granted, keep That's in mind, we we, we're just basically insulting our younger selves because we were in the group of yeah. people who thought we were smart. We sure did. We thought we were so smart. But no, I mean, it's really one of those things like when you get that, you realize that that's what gives you the ability to get up again and say, okay, you know what? I failed. I'm not a failure. It's like it's like when you mix up circumstance and identity, then that starts to define you as a person. And yes. I said that, you know what, you either are either, you can have one or two responses to a failure. You're either informed by it or defined by it. And if you're informed by it, you'll learn from it. If you're defined by it, then fear of failure becomes fear of trying. Yes. For me, I always knew that one day I would crack the code. Yeah. Like I, I really did. I always, I was like, one day, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. Yeah. Like I know and I'm, I'm going still trying to figure it out. I feel like you're the same way, but I'm you're the still... same way. Like I know you're, you might still feel like you haven't quite hit your full stride, but you still know that you're gonna get there one day. Yeah. I had a, so like, a, I had a podcast guest who once told me I would own, own a hockey team one day. <laughs> I was like, that was Can like I my, own in with you? Because yeah, right now you're far more in a position to buy a hockey team than I am. Bro. Not that either of us are anywhere near being able to buy. That's one of my fuck you money dreams is to own a, yeah, team, yeah. a sports team. I didn't know you'd include hockey in that. Look, if, I, if it's a basketball yeah. team, that would be ideal. Basketball, I'm guessing hockey teams are a little cheaper. They, I don't know, because they're in Canada too. But she literally told me, she was like, I remember I met up with her for lunch. She's Marie Forleo's head copywriter. And I remember yeah. she put up a Facebook status update. It just met Trini. I think one day he's going to own a hockey team. That's and such a weird, random thing. Was she like look, a, a face palm, like a palm reader or something? No, no, no. She's like this brilliant copywriter. She's like one of the most pragmatic people you'll ever meet. But to me, that was one of those moments that just always kept me motivated when I was just like, you know what? It's like, yeah, I fucked up. But Laura Belgrade says I'm I mean, on a hockey team. Here's the thing. like that. So th- this is actually... My, well, Michael Buble owns part of a hockey team. And we're all destined to be friends because okay, he's just so a cool get dude. get this. So Glenn Beck, when he met me, told me yeah. uh, that he knew Michael Buble. This was right. when my book came out. I, I never forgot. Dude, that. I remember you told me this. I will yeah. never forget this. But tell and everybody He told else. me. He said, you know what? He said, I met Michael Buble when he's he was about as well-known mm-hmm. as you are right now. That's where you're headed. And I was so like, here's the issue. Here's I love Michael Buble. <laughs> like, you and Michael Buble are like a degree of separation or two degrees. if you Probably, yeah. yeah. And so I'm three. And so I'm pretty sure Michael Buble is going to be listening to this. So listen, Buble, if you want to rap with us and we'll do, you know, the three of us on the next app, 
Just let Srini know. Send him an email. We're going to have a good time. First, I'd have to interview him because Michael Bublé is on my list of, like, dream guests. I think Is he really? Yeah, I love Michael Bublé. Like, I love... Well, so Michael Bublé is a great example in a lot of ways of something that people would think is going to be a failure. He takes old songs, really old songs, things that are, like, 50 years old, and he brings a modern take to them. And this is something Ron Friedman in our interview talked about when he talked about reverse engineering. My yeah, brain yeah. is like an encyclopedia, man. I can. I, I'm laughing because I'm like, people probably think that we planned this whole thing out. No, no, no. And no, they no. said I mean, they're going to talk about Michael coming up. Like the clips were all planned, but literally these are all coming yeah. up. But that's part of the fun of doing this episode is that it's the one unscripted thing we get to do. But yeah. he talked about applying proven principles in original context to be successful. Yeah. And yeah. that's... What Michael Bublé did, he took he took proven principles. It's like there are certain things about these songs that made them perennial sellers, like classics that have stood the test right. of time. And he brought a modern spin to them, and you know, he built oh, yeah. a career out of that. Have and you ever he, seen him in concert? He's a he's phenomenal. I can phenomenal only imagine all my lists. Speaking of which, we got to make a list of concerts to go to before I. Yeah, we do. But first, I got to take you to the Stanley Cup because the Avs are going this year. They are. Got to go. You got. Oh tickets. my God! They're, oh no, they're not on sale yet. But we're gonna go. Okay, great. So that's an example of a non-failure hockey team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah succeeding. Yeah. I'm sure they learned from their previous failures, which the Nuggets apparently haven't. Yeah. No offense to any close. Denver Nugget fan, but yeah. yeah. So that, that's the thing, right? Is that you have these experiences, and the truth is that we're talking about the fact that there're gonna be parts of this that absolutely suck too. Oh, yeah. um, I don't know how we got there. I kind of lost my train of thought, but we'll get back to it. Wait, you've tied everything else back to failure so far, and this is yeah, the one. Yeah, this is the one that I get you know, can't <laughs> seem to tie back to failure. Oh, owning a hockey team. Failure you know, becomes a failure of trying. That's what it is. No, this actually ties perfectly to this whole idea of the fact that there are going to be parts that suck. So we're saying eventually you'll crack the code, and the entire time while you're trying to crack the code, it's just going to suck for a lot of it. Nobody. Yeah. I think that the the problem is that we glorify entrepreneurial stories because we only see the end. And Scott Belsky mm-hmm. wrote this book called The Messy Middle, where he says he's like, there's all this shit in between that you don't see. Right. That's where the majority of the work gets done. That's where the majority of the journey takes place. That is yes. how you become the person you want to be. Basically, what I, I summed it up this way is that you have to be willing to endure the parts that suck to get to the ones that don't. That's true not just for building a business. That's true for learning any skill. You have to go through the pain of learning to experience the joy of mastery. And I'll tell you where I had that insight was on the mountain. I was snowboarding, and this is my ninth year snowboarding. And I remember I just hit the bottom of the hill. I'm like, wow, I'm flying down this hill. And Mm -hmm. suddenly the board doesn't even feel like it's something attached to my body anymore. It just feels like an extension of my body. Where if you look at people who are masters, and just to be clear, I am anything but a master at snowboarding. There are a lot of <laughs> listeners here who would basically leave me in the dust. I can't. I do black diamonds occasionally. So just to be clear, I'm using this as an example. I'm not saying that I have any level of <laughs> You're not mastery. making any claim no, to your, I, to your like, snowboarding skills. Claiming that I would be a master of snowboarding would get me all sorts of bullshit emails from black diamond level skiers. So I'm sure there right. are plenty of in our audience who Let's I would go there. even go skiing with. So yeah, kudos <laughs> to all of you. If you want to come to Colorado... Hit me up. We have really good skiing here, and Garrett got some fresh pow. Won't get on the, the mountain with me, but yeah. although to be fair, Sprinty hasn't gotten on the ice with me yet, so I'm just saying I'll it's... get on the ice with you if you get on the mountain with me. But I'd have to be one on one on the hot on the hockey rink. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Look, we can rent out a we can rent out a sheet of ice for a day. It wouldn't be a big deal. You won't remember this. I know how to ice skate, dude. 
I know this. I know, you told I me this. I grew up in Canada. I'm going to have at least that going I'm Hold on, though. Like, I went to Roller City 2000 when I was in third grade. That didn't mean I knew how to roller skate. I went to ice skated every day at PE in Canada, dude. Did you really? Yeah. See, my dad grew up in Canada, too. He's Canadian. American, but well, born that, in that's Canada. that's what Canadian kids do for PE, because it's cold outside. Though. That's what he would tell me. Like, he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, so good on I, ice skates. So and I'm like, really? And in it's been Edmonton 60 Mall, years. West Edmonton Mall, which is like the second largest mall in the world, there's an ice skating yeah. rink. So my parents would go shopping, and they would leave me at the ice skating rink. And I would just skate the whole time. So <sighs> I'm so actually a decent skater. So I probably have an edge on the ice that you don't on the mountain. We'll see. But we shall see. Okay, we're, so we're gonna have to bring a. We're gonna have to bring a report, not a reporter, we'll but bring a, a camera. videographer with us. Yeah, we'll bring a, a camera. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see, folks. Shit. I'm definitely falling on the on the mountain. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you'll. Well, so this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm talking about. So that first day, surfing is the same way, right? Like when you go out into the water for the first time, it's so ridiculous because the instructor gives you this land lesson. He was like, "All right, mm. this is how you pop up. This is how you paddle for a wave, and you practice popping <laughs> up on a, on sand." I'm like, "I'm sorry, but sand and moving water are completely different variables. See, hidden idiosyncrasies that express themselves in the real world that don't in theoretical scenarios." Right. Again, tying it all back. See, every everywhere with this is. The thing Boom. that I'm good at, I can connect random shit together that most people think has nothing to do with, you know, what I'm actually this talking is, about. This is where the ADHD what? becomes this a strength, folks. called, like, having a brain that's like an encyclopedia. That's what happens after yeah. you talk to a thousand people. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.